Welcome to the Money Talks podcast. My name is Mike Campbell, and I'm glad you're here. I know I keep saying I say that every week, but I really am, and you will be too. You know, one of the things that I've been concerned about when I listen to most in the media is how consistent the message is, how certain agendas seem to dominate. Well, one of the ones I think we're paying the price for right now is the climate agenda's suggestion that we could get off fossil fuels in moments, in a matter of just a couple of years, and go to transition to renewable energy. Well, I think that's becoming apparent. That's not a realistic goal. But it never was. It wasn't like we needed some information. We already knew that we didn't have uh, the resources, for example. I mean, you need cobalt, you need copper. Copper, by the way, is one of my favorite things going forward. There's so many elements that we needed, though, that we're not prepared for at this point. We didn't have a plan to procure them. Well, the result has been you decommission fossil fuels, for example, in Germany, the most blatant thing. You decommission uh, nuclear power. You didn't have a backup. So what did you do? Hey, you had to get Russian oil and gas and ignore all the warnings about what the potential geopolitical implications are for that. But you know what? Today, I'm going to help rectify that. We need a realistic conversation. And for that, I'm going to get Brian Gitt on with me, energy analyst. But more than that, his bona fides about being part of the green revolution are unassailable. Brian's got a long track record of pushing environmental issues, but especially the green agenda. But you know what? He's come to the realization, not just now, but been warning people, you know what? It's not realistic at this point, and there are consequences. Plus, I'll warn you, he's in favor of nuclear power, and that, of course, is highly controversial within the environmental movement itself. But I'm looking forward to the interview with Brian Gitt. Also going to talk to Ozzy Jurek with the latest real estate numbers. Yeah, we're in a downturn, that's for sure. Uh, we're going to talk cybersecurity, but we're also going to talk about cryptocurrencies. As I say, lots coming your way, including a goofy award, shocking stat, quote of the week, and I'm glad you're here. You know, but first, the Office of the Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner's annual report released this week noted that the offices had, in just February and March, in quotes, received over a thousand requests from members of the public asking the Commission to investigate the participation of members and ministers of the federal government in the World Economic Forum. The letters, emails, phone calls in what staff called a coordinated campaign had a consistent theme accusing Finance Minister Christia Freeland and other MPs of being under what they referred to as the influence of the World Economic Forum and their Great Reset Agenda, which, by the way, was immediately and continues to be branded a conspiracy theory by way too many, especially in the media. And Conservative leadership candidate uh, Pierre Poilievre has further put the World Economic Forum in the spotlight by promising if elected prime minister, he will ban ministers and other top officials from involvement with the World Economic Forum. You know what, though, dismissing the great agenda as some sort of wingnut conspiracy theory defies the evidence that the Great Reset is stated and well-publicized goal of the World Economic Forum. And as for the support of elected officials, well, yes, Finance Minister Christia Freeland sits on the Board of Trustees of the World Economic Forum, but that's all public record, along with liberal heavyweights like former head of the Bank of Canada, Mark Carney. I mean, there's nothing secretive or clandestine about the Great Reset Agenda. Klaus Schwab, founder of the World Economic Forum, has consistently been upfront with the stated goal of a Great Reset. And I'm going to give you some examples here, lots of dates. But on June 4th, 2020, June 4th, 2020, on the World Economic Forum website, Schwab and Prince 
uh, Charles released a statement as to why we need, in their words, a great reset, which features more influence of global organizations like the World Health Organization, including on others on issues like climate change, but it's more government involvement, higher levels of taxation, and it necessitates a fundamental change to the economic system. That was July, uh, June 4th, 2020. July 13th, 2020, World Economic Forum website published the article in quotes called, To Build Back Better, We Must Reinvent Capitalism. Here's how. That statement came five weeks after the June 5th OECD report entitled, Building Back Better, A Sustainable, Resilient Recovery After COVID-19. July 14th, 2020 this is, Klaus Schwab book, Building Back Better, A Sustainable, Resilient Recovery After COVID. That was released in which he states in quotes, this pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. This is our chance to accelerate our pre-pandemic efforts to reimagine economic systems that actually address global challenges like extreme poverty, inequality, and climate change. In that same month, this is July 220, Democratic presidential candidate at the time, Joe Biden declares his slogan was to build back better. Well, not long after, the UK's Boris Johnson said his government would build back better, echoed shortly after by the European Central Bank's Christine Lagarde. In August, Finance Minister Chrystia Freeland and Prime Minister Trudeau jumped on board, declaring it was time to build back better. I mean, come on, it is more than a stress to suggest they all came up with exactly the same slogan that was being pushed by the World Economic Forum by coincidence. You know, and there's so much more evidence, by the way, including the World Economic Forum's online conference, because it was COVID, in January 221, that was entitled The Great Reset. How is this a conspiracy theory? One more example, during the United Nations video conference in September 220, Prime Minister Trudeau borrowed the words directly from Klaus Schwab, stated that in quotes, the pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset and a reimagining of the economic system, end of quote. I mean, to call this a conspiracy is absurd. I mean, build back matter, as many in the establishment media have said, is to say it's a conspiracy is either disingenuous or shows a profound level of intellectual laziness. I mean, do a little homework. And it's not a secret agenda, as some are claiming. It's not part of a conspiracy. I mean, Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum have been absolutely upfront about their goals. Nothing secretive about it. And there is nothing new about the agenda of greater centralized government control under the influence in many areas, and I think climate change is top of the list, of a supernatural, uh, national rather, supernatural organization. That's creating that new world order. There's nothing new in stakeholder capitalism, which is the foundation of the Great Reset's reimagining capitalism, which says that companies are not just operating in the interests of their shareholders, but also society as a whole. Certainly China today, and it's the driving force beside, behind ESG and uh, climate regulations. But it's beyond the climate agenda or the pandemic response, which is why it's a big mistake for opponent, uh, uh, opponents of the world economic agenda to focus on some sort of secret agenda, because that distracts from the far bigger fundamental issue, the role and scope of government, which includes like, what's the level of taxation? How about government censorship and free speech? Things like vaccine mandates, well actually more like individual rights and democracy itself given 
many decisions would be heavily influenced by non-elected officials in these supranational organizations. Yes, I mean, obviously some politicians are heavily influenced by the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab, but not in any secretive way. Schwab and other elites who participate at the WEF are simply providing the ideological underpinnings for some politicians, businesses, and bureaucrats. And yes, they do have adherence in the, local, uh, in the Liberal government, the Prime Minister or Finance Minister Friedland and others like Mark Carney, but it's not a secret. And every politician is in ideologically influenced. It could be the works of Karl Marx. It could be Adam Smith's invisible hand. But you know what? The pandemic's response illustrates the fragile nature of uh, individual rights versus the state. That's what this debate about the Great Reset should center on. Not some erroneous claim of a secret agenda. It's well spelled out. And the question is, are you in favor of it or not? Hey, before I move on, I want to remind you of something. I was asked this because someone said, hey, where was that place that you recommended we go? Well, it's a wonderful place called the West Coast Wilderness Lodge. Uh, what you do is you go from the Horseshoe Bay to the Langdale Ferry, and then you drive for only about an hour. But I tell you, I swear you'll think you're in a different world. Absolutely the cliche, beautiful BC. So much there. Absolutely a fabulous place, though. And, uh, you know, I've, I'm going to go again uh, shortly. Uh, I went last year, and I was just blown away. So, yeah, that was the place. It's called the West Coast Wilderness Lodge. West Coast Wilderness Lodge. Uh, simple to go. WCWL.com wcwl.com if you're looking for a, a great uh, couple of days away three days away uh, with uh, a spouse or friends a group of you i really highly recommend it by the way uh, the restaurant there is fabulous and it, uh, you know so you can buy a complete package there but you can go to uh, all sorts of uh, places you can take the boat up uh, go to chatterbox falls for example as i say what i was blown away by was how close it was to vancouver and yet presto you feel like you're in absolutely another world so that's wcwl.com see i answer my questions i want to get a hold of mike levy right now and find out mike you're always got your finger on the pulse of all of this stuff, but you know, it's what people are talking about. What's the news. Tell me what's trending right now for you. Well, trending in the last week, because coming up on Wednesday of this week, the bank of Canada announced the uh, bank of Canada rate. It was all expectations. It was going to go up by 50 basis points, half a percent. It's been all over the media. That's what they did. But Mike can half a percent really have any impact on inflation that Canadians are now suffering? Well, I mean, we look since the beginning of the year, we're up about, you know, a quarter point in March, half point in April. Now we got the latest half point. The problem is this, Mike, is, as you well know, that none of this has anything to do with energy prices. And that's what's getting passed through to the entire economy. I mean, diesel prices at records, you know, we got record prices for any kind of refined product like jet fuel and gasoline. And of course, look at the oil prices. I mean, yeah, they're fluctuating, but we're sort of getting entrenched in that 110 area up to 117. You know, the list goes on. Well, you know, raising interest rates got nothing to do with that stuff. That's not the problem. And then one more for you, Mike, as you know, we talk about food. I can't avoid buying food and food prices are going to stay up elevated because we've got diesel prices. That's killing farmers right now. But also, of course, fertilizer costs, which we've been chronicling for a year. So I don't see how it impacts the food price either. So we're getting to a pretty narrow aspect of what inflation 
you know, that they can deal with by raising rates. Uh, well, Mike, you know, what happened yesterday is the Bank of Canada in the accompanying statement, it was just a short statement, but there was the warning, and I think uh, a warning that we can all heed is that they may raise interest rates next time or the time after by three quarters of 1%. Well, that may not have, again, as much impact on overall inflation and whether Canadians can afford, but it's certainly going to be very, very impactful on housing market, for instance, mortgages. I mean, three quarters of 1% is a pretty big bump, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, even at another half point coming on to us, uh, keep in mind, after uh, this week's bump, you're looking at somebody, let's say, with got a $600,000 mortgage. They're paying 425 after-tax dollars more on a $600,000 mortgage variable rate than they were just like five months ago. Well, that 425 is coming from somewhere. And then you throw in that gasoline uh, extra cost there. I mean, everybody who's filled up at the pump sure knows this. Well, that money's coming from somewhere else too, because we're still driving. So yeah, I think it does actually reduce the amount of money we have to spend on alternative things that should slow in certain areas, as I say, not food, not gasoline, but in certain areas, yeah, I just won't have as much money to spend. And yeah, you're right, Mike, throwing another half point, throwing another maybe three quarters coming up, whatever it is. Yeah, I think it has a direct impact on people's spending power because it's coming in conjunction with raised prices in both fuel and, uh, well, it could be property taxes too, fuel and, uh, and food. But Mike, as they raise the rates, and they're going to in the U.S. and Canada, there's got to be a tipping point somewhere. Right now, business is good. The economy is good. Employment's near full employment. But there has to be a tipping point to the economy. There's, there's going to be a tipping point also to equity markets. Where do you see that happening? Well, first of all, they can't afford that. That you're quite right. You're absolutely right. That's exactly what they're looking at probably on a daily basis, any stats they can get, you know, at the central banks. But they can't afford it because keep in mind what that means is we've slowed the economy. Government revenues are down during that. Well, they can't afford a decline in government revenues, especially in the states. When you look at how much is going to entitlements and defense, they'd be in real trouble. So that's, you know, you'd mentioned this a week or two ago, like there's no easy answer here. There's no really place for them to go. And that's what we're describing. But you're quite right. There will be a tipping point. And that's what the big debate in uh, finance is today. At what point do we hit it? That's why we're watching closely those retail sales numbers, especially the ones coming out of Target and Walmart. Maybe that was a more significant indicator. Well, the housing, as you just alluded to, absolutely. The housing has slowed down in the U.S., slowed down, as I'll talk to more with Aussie about it in a few minutes, but slowed down specifically in Canada. So they are starting to feel the effects of raising these rates. Let me ask you one last question. This is really interesting. I read this midweek in the Globe and Mail. There's one part of business one sector that is looking forward, and I can say not joyfully, but with big smiles on their face about higher interest rates, and that's the Canadian banks. And uh, a column I read this week, as I say in the Globe, said they're looking at billions of dollars, billions of dollars more profit this year because of higher interest rates. So that's a bit of an anomaly, isn't it? Absolutely, it is an anomaly. And it's that uh, differentiation between they're going to loan money out at higher rates, and they immediately moved, as you know, they moved a half point as soon as the Bank of Canada announced the prime rate bump from 3.2 to uh, 3.7. So they're lending money at higher rates. Hey, have you noticed that your savings account got a bump yet? I haven't, you know, uh, and certainly the bump is never as big 
as uh, you know the size of the loan change. So yeah, I think absolutely right. It's conventional to think that you know that financial institutions, because of that differentiation between loan and deposit rates, do a lot better. So yeah, and b- with this size, they are going to do better. One anomaly then, Mike, to close off uh, is it's good for investors, those who hold bank stocks, any which way they're going to see higher profits if what the banks say comes to unfold and they're going to get bigger dividends, more dividends, and their bank stocks are going to go up. With one, one caveat, and that is coming back to what you said a couple of minutes ago. What if they raise rates sufficiently that the loan demand goes down faster? Or as you, uh, we just talked about, certainly mortgage demand goes down because they make a lot of money on those mortgages. So that's the other side we'll be looking at. But you're absolutely right. Traditionally, it's usually good news for financial institutions. Time now for the quote of the week. Although before I get to it, you know, I had to ask myself a question. Did I choose it because it kind of reinforces the longstanding primary trend outlined on Money Talks, and that is the declining confidence in government, or is an important measure that our thesis is actually getting wider acceptance? I think it's probably a little of both, but I welcome the verification or validation of well-respected voices in the Wall Street Journal's editorial board. But it's more important to note that until politicians, government officials, and in this particular case, Nobel Prize winning economists who endorsed President Biden's massive spending agenda as being non-inflationary, but it could have been public health like Dr. Anthony Fauci, who misled the public, until they all understand the profound consequences of their actions in terms of undermining confidence in government. It's not that the mainstream media doesn't see the deep divisions, I think they do now, social unrest and the distrust in the establishment institutions, but very few seem to understand, or maybe they just don't want to acknowledge the role that they play in fueling the distrust, which is why when mainstream media publications like the Wall Street Journal acknowledges the problem, that I think it's significant, which brings me to my quote of the week from their lead editorial on Thursday in quotes, One hallmark of our era is the collapse of public trust in government and experts of all kind. But it's hard to fault the public when so many experts and their policies have failed in such spectacular fashion. The inflation that progressives helped to cause, failed to anticipate, and then ignored is just one more example of earned public distrust. I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while because I've been following Brian Gitt on Twitter and then looking at his blog from there. And of course, he's the author of a book called The Unfair Advantage. And so Brian's kind enough to join us here on Money Talks. Brian, thanks for finding time for us. Thanks so much. I'm excited to talk with you today. Well, it's kind of interesting, uh, and the setup just continues. I mean, I'm looking at a couple of headlines on Thursday and Friday of this week. You know, Pakistan may have to close 40,000 factories. Uh, another headline, Swiss, uh, the Swiss are told to prepare for blackouts or rationing. And, of course, we've got the record high gas and diesel prices in the U.S. Obviously, something's gone wrong with our energy policy. I can't believe those are the goals of anybody in power over the last 10 and 20 years. And so I wanted to first ask you, and I want to get, obviously, that's what we're going to chat about. But I thought I'd also better ask you a quick question about your background. Because my experience in discussing these things is that 
anybody, you know, if, oh, I don't like that fact or I don't like that analysis, so I'm going to dismiss the person as a shill for somebody or other. But what I love about you is you come from, and I quoted this in our promotions, uh, your green bona fides is so good that no one can dismiss you know, uh, that you've got some other agenda going here. You've dedicated your adult life to, uh, you know, a lot of the green agenda, and yet you've come to a point. So tell us just quickly about a little bit about your background in this, in these broad areas. I, I wasted 20 years of my life chasing these renewable energy fantasies. So I really understand it. Uh, I've spent mo basically most of my professional career um, working in the energy sector, specifically promoting renewable energy as well as energy efficiency programs. You know, this all came for me from really a love of the outdoors. I, I led mountaineering expeditions in Alaska. I spent months backpacking the Rockies and climbed in national parks. And that all of this, all these, my wilderness experiences led me to want to do something to protect these areas. And that led me to energy and and really to promoting these kinds of technologies and programs because I wanted something that had a very practical way to make a positive impact. Um, so I spent my whole career starting for, I really started from the ground up. I wanted to understand how buildings and how energy work. So I went to work in construction, building energy efficient and solar powered homes. Um, I was the executive director of a green building trade association where we trained builders and architects and promoted green building policies throughout the state of California. Uh, I started a software company where we helped sell solar systems in the value of solar power. Um, I was the CEO of a consulting, of a clean tech consulting firm. We were working on fuel cell vehicles, carbon capture and storage, as well as um, energy efficiency upgrades in buildings at a, at a pretty significant scale. Um, and all the way through, uh, most more recently, I worked on a wireless power technology to send power through the air without wires or batteries. So I've I've worked across the gamut within kind of the energy green world for many years. Uh, but what I found was I, some of the beliefs that I held, the cracks were starting to show that the results were not living up to the hype into the expectations. Well. Let me ask you about, you just said this, you said at, at times you feel like you wasted 20 years of your life. I, I want you to elaborate a little bit more on that because you're obviously dedicated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I said, I got into this because I really wanted to have a positive impact on the environment. But when you invest so much time and so much energy in something and you're not actually delivering the results that you'd hoped, that feels like a waste. So I, I, I honestly do feel like I wasted a lot of time. I was betting on the wrong technologies. I, my instincts were correct. I wanted to, you know, energy is the foundation of all human flourishing and, and all of our prosperity. So it is, it is, I was drawn to this issue and um, I love working on energy, but I just chose the wrong technologies and the wrong programs to, to champion and support um, that were really going to scale and lead to the desired results of lower emissions, greater environmental protections, ultimately uh, across the board. What do you think that, you know, I, I know you've written a piece on this and people can get it at Brian Gitt, G-I-T-T, BrianGitt.com, but uh, just share with us a, a couple of the big myths out there. I mean, we're looking at an energy transition. We're looking going away from fossil fuel. And, you know, as I uh, had mentioned before, that the idea that we could do that in 10 minutes, I thought was about as dangerous as you could get. I mean, it really was absurd. You know, Greta Thunberg saying by 2025, uh, you know, the, the common one now is 2030, although it's fudging up to 2035 because we're not making enough progress. In some cases, no progress. Um, so 
what do you think the biggest myths are out there? The world is not transitioning to solar, wind, and batteries. That, this is a myth that's perpetuated. It's basically the foundation of the various climate action strategies to get to net zero emissions by 2050. The whole world, not the whole world, but many people believe that these strategies, these technologies that are going to lead us to lower emissions are a combination of wind and solar power with battery backup. And that is just not the case. Um, first of all, solar and wind and batteries, they overconsume minerals and land, and they're just too unreliable and expensive at scale. And when we look at Let's look at actual data, look at history versus uh, grandiose projections. When we look over the last 20 years, um, we've invested trillions of dollars. Even in the last decade, we've invested $2.7 trillion with a T um, in these technologies. And what we've seen is globally, they're only 3% of total energy, right? So we've, we've gone from... 87% of the world being supplied by fossil fuels to 84% of the world <laughs> being um, powered by fossil fuels. So not a big dent over a 20-year period of time with trillions of dollars invested. And when you actually start looking at the underlying foundational principles of how these technologies work, you can see why they're not going to be able to scale um, to meet our needs. And it's really critical that we have uh, – reliable, affordable energy systems overall that have low emissions and use land efficiently. I mean, I'm looking at Germany as the poster child that way, where uh, it seems astounding to me that they decommissioning nuclear, and I'll get to that in a few minutes, but uh, and decommissioning fossil fuels and relying on solar and wind, and Great Britain went through this, in, in especially in the fall when the wind didn't blow, uh, but without backup power. I mean, I find that just unfathomable and then consistently being warned about, well, you're going to have to just rely on Russia. Well, of course, all of that has come to pass, exactly what you've been alluding to. Germany is the canary in the coal mine. I mean, they're the perfect example because they, more than any country on planet Earth, have invested more time and more energy in this myth, in these false beliefs about wind and solar power. For the last 20 years, they have invested, well, by 2025, it'll be about $550 billion uh, equivalent. It's actually 580 billion euros, but a lot of money, right? Almost yeah. over a half a trillion dollars. Um, and let's look at what they've actually accomplished with that. Um, number one, they've sacrificed their energy security. It is a combination of overinvestment in solar and wind power, underinvestment in hydrocarbons, and shutting down their nuclear power plants, as you alluded to, uh, making them more reliant on Russia for their energy. So, so, so that's part of it. Um, but actually, when you look at how they're actually using energy today, they went from about 11% wind and solar renewable part of the mix to about 40%. So they, they increase quite considerably. But when you actually look at the number of power plants that still had to exist, and this is one of the biggest fallacies about wind and solar power is that they don't actually replace power plants. For every megawatt of wind and solar power, you need a megawatt of some type of reliable baseload power, be it Usually it's natural gas because natural gas can ramp up and down, but you need to have some reliable baseload power. And what we've seen is that Germany has needed to keep 90% of all their fossil fire generation capacity. So even though they've gone from 11% to 40%, 
of you know, rampant renewables, you would think logically, I think most people that are supporting these policies would imagine, well, that means that we're decreasing the infrastructure needed on the fossil fuel side. Untrue, not happening, 90%. And now what are we seeing when it when the, um, really comes down to it? They're having to burn more coal so because they've shut down nuclear power and they've divested from really building out this infrastructure of, of you know, having this reliable hydrocarbons and nuclear power. Now they're more reliant on Russia. And so it, it's just from every angle, they are the perfect example of how these false beliefs can put you really in a bad in a bad spot. Well, and I'm wondering, just your impression, I mean, you can't be measuring this at this point, but I look around, I hear some of the commentary from our political leaders, and it's like they have learned nothing from that whole experience. And it started well before the invasion. We were chronicling on Money Talks the record prices for electricity in Great Britain when the wind didn't blow last September and October. You know, we were talking about uh, the shortages in China and the ramp up of coal production. Everything you don't want to have happen has been happening. And yet I don't sense a change in the broad discussion when it comes to our political leadership. Correct. It, it almost is as, as if they're doubling down on some of these bad strategies. Let's just take uh, another very specific example with Germany. You know, the, the, the claims of the proponents of the wind and solar model in those technologies are, well, we'll eventually build out battery storage or some way to store enough energy to overcome this intermittency issue. Because in Germany, for solar power, the sun, it only is actually making energy about 12% of the time. So because it's it's overcast in Germany a lot, they have dark winters. They don't have long days half the year. So 12% of the time, they're only able to generate solar, right? So obviously, you need to store that. Um, our wind obviously is better than solar, but it's still not great. It's like 30, 33% or so of the time. So you need to be able to store that energy. Well, when you look at a country like Germany, and they did analysis of this. They went back for 35 years of actual hour interval data. So I'm not talking about estimates or projections of how much energy storage you would need. I'm looking at actual data. And what they found was during a period of time, there was about a 61-day scarcity of wind and, so and wind and sun to basically create very much energy in, in that day period. And what that resulted in is you would need 24 days days of energy storage, 24 days. This is 36 terawatt hour. It's such an amazing amount of energy and amount of investment. They would have to go into building out all those batteries. It, it was, it's economically impossible to do it. And yet, you still have proponents claiming that we're going to be able to overcome the intermittency issue through battery storage. It's not going to happen, uh, especially in a climate like Germany, where you just don't have favorable conditions. And oftentimes, like we saw in 2021, you can get multiple months of wind droughts. You know, Europe saw six months of wind droughts over in 2021. The UK, a lot of their um, wind farms were operating like 32% below what they thought they were going to perform at due to the wind droughts. I mean, no one can control that. So it, this intermittency issue, there's no technology that has really solved this problem at scale. It, it's Astounding to me, though, that the lack of practicality in our debate, and you've done a wonderful job just elaborating on a couple of things, and I want to come back to just one of them you were saying a moment ago. Absolutely, the failure to acknowledge the amount of resources and fossil fuel it will take 
to build out a system of renewable energy. I mean, what do they think it's made of? And what, who do you think those big heavy machineries are going to be powered with? I, I just find that astounding. And it's been unwelcome. I would think someone whose climate change is their top issue would be demanding some sort of practical thing. You know, and, and we just 20 years into it, 30 years into it, whatever date we want to start with, there just seems to be so little practicality or even acknowledgement that the amount of resources that are going to be required. Yeah, if you're really wanting a policy to effectively reduce carbon emissions, you would not be supporting wind and solar power because uh, as an example here in the United States, I'm I'm sitting here in San Francisco, California, um, in, in the United States, the U.S. switch over the last 15 years has gone has done this transformation from coal to natural gas. And that has saved a billion metric tons of CO2. That's more than the entire uh, European Union since 2005. So this is over a 15-year period. Now, 61% of those savings was from natural gas. Only 8% of the CO2 reduction was from solar. So solar was a teeny, teeny part of that. So if you're really wanting what is the most effective way to reduce and scale these programs, reduce CO2 emissions, scale these programs quickly, you would look for solutions like coal to gas switching. You would, look, you would be supporting nuclear power. These are the two most effective ways to reduce CO2. And obviously, nuclear takes a longer time to build. So you have to be planning ahead. You have to um, get rid of some of these onerous regulations that are per- taking, making these things take 8 to 10 years to build. There's no reason they need to take 8 to 10 years. Uh, we see this in Asia right now. Um, they're being, they can be built in four years uh, pretty successfully. China's doing this, other parts of Southeast Asia, in the Middle East, this is happening. Um, so there's n- the only reason it's taking eight to ten years to build is because we basically criminalized it um, and made it so difficult and so burdensome and so much red tape that you have to wade through, and there's so much legal challenge that the, the lawyer bills are astronomical in, in just the time it takes to build these things. So... We are our own worst enemy on these policies because we have the solutions right in front of us. It's natural gas and nuclear power. If that, that, is, that is the solution to climate change and to having lower emissions. You know, in uh, Canada, in British Columbia, northern British Columbia, there's a project called the Coastal Gas Link, which is LNG you know, terminals and LNG going into Asia. And I'm still astounded at the opposition. You know, I'm, I'm nodding my head to what you've just said. And, of course, what's been the result? This is the thing that's changed, I think, is the results of the climate policy are blatant to anyone who's gone to the gas pump. You know, so it's now hitting home. You always say people don't understand how it affects them directly. Well, higher food prices because of the fertilizer uh, problem because of discouraging natural gas, but uh, also that substitute for coal, because I'm looking at what India is talking about right now with their incredible change and, and push. Uh, China, incredible push for coal, and then Germany. I mean, if that isn't the most insane policy going, is that they're going to decommission that last three uh, nuclear plants? I think it's December coming up, and they're ramping up coal instead. I, I mean, you can't make it up. You know, it's an interesting fact on on this unfortunate transition to back to coal. Um, In the last 12 months, we have basically spiked coal consumption considerably. So we've consumed 500 metric tons of additional coal than we normally would have, right, just in the last 12 months 
you, because of governments like Germany having to go back on coal because they're shutting down nuclear. But it's not just there. This is throughout the world. Um, there's been a ramp up in coal use and production. And just in that 12 months, that 500 million uh, metric tons, we've wiped out in the, in the U.S., 15 years of all the solar and wind carbon reduction. So in 12 months of just this, this little spike that we've seen due to some bad energy policies, um, and obviously the Ukraine war is impacting that as well. It's not simple. There's a nuance and multi-factors involved here. Um, we've, we've wiped out 15 years of all of the CO2 reductions from solar and wind power. Uh, in the U.S. just from that spike. So it really shows you um, the, that the, inter- the world runs on hydrocarbons today, and it's going to run on hydrocarbons for decades to come. We are going to transition to cleaner burning fuels, going from, for example, coal to natural gas, and eventually to we're going to scale up nuclear. Nuclear is inevitable, I believe. I, I believe it is the absolute safest, most powerful, least uh, emission way to generate power. Um, But it's not going to be used for everything, too. I mean, a lot of our mobility and our transportation fuels aren't going to be um, solved by nuclear power, at least in the near term, maybe in the in the very distant future. But uh, we're going to need hydrocarbons for for decades to come. Well, one of the sides of the debate that you've just reminded me of is that we talk about uh, transportation a lot. We Obviously, it's the dominant theme is how we're uh, powering our vehicles and probably heating our homes, something like that. And I'm going, but wait, there's 6,000 plus products made that are petroleum-based. You know, everyday products, I, I, my gummy vitamins, you know, have a petroleum. Obviously, plastic is in there. But that list is long. I rarely hear about how we're going to substitute there. Not at all. I mean, we, you, it's almost – the problem is there's uh, – we have – become so used to just our certain level of prosperity. And unfortunately, we we don't have a lot of gratitude for everything that we have. Um, I mean, I don't think that the average person in Canada or the U.S. or any Western developed country could even go one day or maybe even an hour without using lots of products made by hydrocarbons. I mean, as you alluded to, everything I'm looking at in front of me right now, from the microphone I'm talking in to the desk I'm sitting at to the computer I'm using to speak with you with today to the lights, to my phone, to every, the roofing on my house, everything is made with hydrocarbons. And, you know, no amount of solar or wind is ever going to replace that, right? I mean, it is the core ingredient in modern civilization. It's, I, you know what keeps coming back to me is that we're not talking anything that uh, isn't readily approvable, the facts, uh, you know, all of this stuff and the things that you're bringing forward to us. I'm just wondering, what response do you get when you bring that to someone who's uh, bought into that climate change, uh, change agenda that says we can get off fossil fuels, you know, within just a, sh- a short number of years and we can do it with renewables? I mean, what do they say in the face of these facts? I think the most effective way to persuade people is to first you got to zoom out and identify what is the goal? What are we aiming at? Obviously, we're not aiming at CO2 reduction. We're, we're aiming at protecting and improving human lives, and we're aiming at protecting and improving our environment, right? And you have to center around a conversation or discussion about what are we trying to achieve? That's first and foremost. Once you kind of get buy-in in agreement on that, then you can say, all right, so what is the most effective, quickest way to get there? 
How are we going to achieve that goal? And what are the technologies? I am personally agnostic on technologies. I don't care if it's whatever it is, nuclear, solar, wind, geothermal. To me, it doesn't matter. Um, whatever is going to be the most effective way to deliver reliable, affordable, low emissions power in the least amount of land possible in in allow for us to have energy security. Each country is going to have a slightly different way of weighting those things, but there's really five criteria that I evaluate all energy technologies on. And I think, again, starting with the goal, um, then building up, getting buy-in on that, and then figuring out, well, what are the evaluation metrics? How are we actually going to evaluate these technologies to see if it's the goal? And there's five. First is energy security. And as we talked about earlier, if you don't have energy security, you don't have a country. And if you, there's no better evidence of this right now than what's happening in Europe. You are destabilizing Europe, especially countries like Germany, significantly due to their energy reliance on Russia. And it's now being used as a political tool, right? So that's first and foremost. Second is reliability. If you don't have a 24-7 reliable energy grid, you can't build fertilizer plants. You can't build smelting operations. You can't build industry. You can't really have a functioning modern civilization. And we see this because many parts of the world don't have this, right? And you can see that they're stuck in poverty. Um, and specifically, you know, we have over 3 billion people on the planet today are living in energy poverty, right? They barely have enough energy of a typical refrigerator that you and I would use. Um, and they don't have access to all these modern conveniences that, that we have that make life better. Um, so reliability is key. Then affordability. If energy is not affordable, if only the ultra-wealthy can afford it, um, or companies can't even afford, like right now, you're having fertilizer plants shut down in Europe um, because they can't afford the energy, right? So then that has this ripple effect to the cost of food. And then the cost of food in inflation, in commodity inflation is going through the roof. So affordability is key. Then emissions. No one wants to breathe dirty air. We all want clean air. We all want lower CO2. You know, no, I think we're all aligned on this ultimately. But what is the most effective way to do it, right? And then the fifth category is land use, right? The, one of my biggest complaints about um, these low-density power sources like wind and solar power is they just require an incredible amount of land, right? For example, a 200-megawatt wind farm takes up um, 13 square miles of land, miles. Like it's just a massive area of land. That same um, amount of power that you would need for you could do in a natural gas plant and fit and fit that on a city sing, a city block right so you're talking about 13 square miles versus a city block um and then when you're comparing something like nuclear it's even better so you know a solar farm uses 75 times more land than a nuclear power plant for generating the same amount of electricity and a wind farm uses 360 times more land than a nuclear power plant for the same amount of energy. So th these have enormous impacts on natural habitat and ecosystems in general, right? And it's just a huge amount of minerals that go into making all of this, uh, all the solar panels and wind turbines to cover all this land. So it's land use is, is the fifth category that I, I think is a very important and often overlooked part of the discussion. It's astounding that it somehow gave him a shock that reliability was important.
that that wasn't front and center for you know decision making over the last 20 years i mean seriously that talk about taking your lifestyle for granted and now getting hit in the head with it and the other i mean you've alluded to it but it's one of our big concerns is you know bad policy and we could be talking about other issues too but bad policy impacts the vulnerable that's who pays there was nobody who attended cop 26 who can't afford in your case in the us per gallon ten dollars per gallon you know they can all afford that you know in canada's case maybe three dollars a liter or something but their policies have a phenomenal impact on the poor and the vulnerable and i just find it astounding that affordability obviously wasn't part of their decision making you know reliability wasn't part of their decision making it's i know as you can tell i'm just regularly blown away because the consequences are so dire you know i'm worried i'm in that camp that is very worried you mentioned the fertilizer shortage and i was well aware of them shutting down the plants and this is well before the uh, the invasion you know way, well before the russian invasion of ukraine and the impact and i just had another stat that there's been a 30% reduction of fertilizer use what a surprise. The price of something gets unaffordable. They reduce fertilizer use. Crop yields go down. You know, hence it's not available. And you're right. I mean, it's exacerbated by sanctions, you know, coming out of Ukraine, Russia-Ukraine conflict. But this was apparent ages ago. And I just, I mean, I love that list because they, we have to have some criteria for evaluating energy policy. And sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that this really comes down. I know your your audience here is is investors, and I look at these decisions really as investment decisions. Ultimately, like when you make an investment, you got to have some criteria for making the investment. You can't just go always on gut yeah. and just you know wherever the wind's blowing, right? You you do your analysis and you have evaluation criteria, and I think that is really lost in this conversation, and it's rooted in unfortunately in energy ignorance. And I was one of those people, so I'm not pointing fingers and saying hey, these are bad people or anything like that, because I was one of them. I, I think I was, I was ignorant about a lot of these topics that we're talking about now for, many, for most of my career. Um, and I was working in the energy sector. And I think this is, it, it was really a lack of critical thinking and applying um, very detailed evaluation criteria and a, in a methodical way in trying to think critically about this. So it's, it's, the problem is when we bring up things like affordability, you still have these myths and false beliefs around, well, solar and wind are the, are the least cost, right? You hear this over and over and over again, that solar and wind are the least expensive ways to generate um, low emission energy. And it's, it's just not true. It's like comparing apples and oranges, right? Um, it's like if I, said, if I told you that you're going to buy, you had a choice of two cars to buy. Um, one car you could only use for about eight hours a day, only during specific time periods. Um, and the other car you could use 24, seven, 365, whenever you wanted, are those two cars valued the same? No, I mean, of course they're not going to be valued the same. You couldn't even, you know, go on a weekend trip on one of them, or you couldn't even go out uh, for dinner at night in one of them. So th there's no way those two things are the same value. Um, I, I, time's running short, but I've got to at least touch on this and uh, about the role of nuclear. I think one of the things that, by the way, that was completely lost in the Canadian discussion debate was how much dissension there is within what people would be called climate activists. You know, even the activist community 
uh, and I regularly quote James Hansen, you know, who is the guiding force between, between, uh, behind Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth and, and Nassau and, and other things he's doing now. But certainly no one's questioning his climate change bona fides, you know, on the agenda. And he calls the idea that we could uh, provide 100% energy with renewables grotesque. And he mentions uh, some of the things you've been alluding to, like the amount of resources required, the amount of fuel required. Um, why has nuclear got such a bad rap when it's pretty straightforward? I mean, there's, I can bring on a ton of people who tell you emissions-free, you know, the, the, the very things that you're talking about, the footprint, all of that stuff, uh, you know, points to nuclear. Nuclear power is inevitable. I believe our civilization will be powered on nuclear in the future. The problem is how many people are going to have to suffer um, until more people become aware of this fact and, and will support these kinds of policies. I mean, it, it, w the entire evolution of human beings have, has been a march towards higher and higher and higher density of energy sources. You know, that's why, you know, we went from wood to coal and to coal to oil. And, you know, nuclear is, is the logical next progression of high density fuel that is absolutely the safest, most reliable, most affordable way to generate low emission electricity, right? And when people say had their critiques of it usually come from the conflation of nuclear war with nuclear power. And that's really the, the genesis of, I think, a lot of the false beliefs, because actually when you go back in time, a lot of the conservation organizations, think places like Sierra Club, National Resources Defense Council, et cetera, that they used to be supportive of nuclear power. Right. It, it really shifted, um, you know, after the anti-war movement kind of needed a lot of people needed another area to focus on and they they chose nuclear power. And so they basically criminalized nuclear and made it incredibly difficult to build it. Um, and unfortunately, that conflation of nuclear war and nuclear power has persisted today. Uh, I, I want to come back with you at another time and just spend the whole thing dedicated to that solution and, you know, how we get there. But in the meantime, Brian, I, I can't thank you enough for finding time for us. Uh, man, talk about delivering. And I want to let people know they can find you at Brian Gitt, G-I-T-T, BrianGitt.com. And uh, I would encourage you to follow him on Twitter, uh, the kind of background and depth that I think we need to raise the level of discussion, which is so desperately needed when it comes to this major energy issue. Brian, thank you. Thank you so much. It's great chatting with you. Time now for the shocking stat of the week, and it deals with one cost of the energy transition that's rarely mentioned, well, if ever, although... When I come to think of it, I can't think of any aspect of the transition to green energy that's fully costed. But specifically, I'm talking about the amount of money provincial and federal governments collect in fuel taxes. And this doesn't include the special levies, maybe, but put on by some municipalities. Well, the list of fuel taxes is a long one. I mean, we could talk carbon tax, federal excise tax, or a provincial excise tax, a federal sales tax. And as I say, the municipalities like Vancouver and Victoria, well, they add a transit tax. All in all, though, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation estimates that the tax take from, well, it's a low of 18% at the pump in Alberta to a high of something like 38% in Vancouver. And that brings me to the shocking stat. I mean, how much does government collect in fuel taxes? Well, the shocking number is $22 billion. That's it. 
Think about it. $22 billion, as they say, depending which city you're in, what province you're in, well, the percentage of what you're paying at the pump in taxes varies with the high, high in North America, in Vancouver at about 38, even up to 40%. But the question is, what if everyone switches to electric vehicles? Well, obviously, that fuel tax revenue dries up. Presto, $22 billion gone if everyone has switched. So how are governments going to replace that much revenue? I mean, that's the money that helps fund highways, bridges, local roads. So it's important. But is anyone even asking the question? Well, maybe the government's lucky because I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that government doesn't have an answer, hasn't thought it through. But that still doesn't change the reality that there's a heck of a lot of money collected in fuel taxes that will have to be replaced. Hey, I want to bring in Ozzy Jurek right now because there's something that really caught my eye, but it's against the backdrop of a weakening real estate market, which Ozzy has been talking about since February when he thought the high was in. Ozzy, let me come to this because you talked about it before. We chatted about it, and that's the program that the federal government has to help people buy a home, get into the market with it. You know, the first time home buyer's incentive, I think it's called. Maybe you could first elaborate on what that is, but then I got to get right back to you on the change the government proposed this week. Yeah, in 2019, the government, in its effort to make us all happier and more affordable, brought in the first time home buyer's buyer incentive. But that's essentially something brand new because it's a shared equity mortgage, which means the government may give you five to to 10%, depending on is it a new home or existing home, and there's some qualifications necessary. And they will give you, grant you that amount of money, like a mortgage. And then it's the new thing at that time was, if the home increases in value, you need to pay back more than you borrowed. And if it decreases in value, you'll pay back less than you borrowed. And an example, let's say you had this property that you purchased for 500000 you stayed there for 25 years. It went from 500000 to $2.3 million, which it actually did in the city of Vancouver. Then you would have to pay back that 50000 That would have ballooned to 237000 because that would have been about 10% in 25 years. And I guess it went over like a lead balloon. Yeah. yeah. In other words, the, gar- the government became your partner in that purchase in that way. And, and yeah, you just answered the question, but it did come to mind. How popular was this? Well, it wasn't very popular, even though the government argued it goes both ways. Please, what if the house drops by that same amount? We will participate as well. Okay, so let's go to the change, because this is what grabbed me. That Okay, so this is the deal. It's been for four years or over four years people make this deal. And it looks like the government's a little worried about a weakening home market and falling prices, because it looks like, hey, they still get that take on the upside, but they want to make sure they don't have that full share of the downside. Well, I mean, you're kind of a very cynical person, Mike. I mean, I'm surprised (laughs) surprised to see that. The government only has your best interest at heart, as you know that. I mean... But there's a couple of things that the changes are. First of all, your qualifying annual income used to be four times what you would earn. Now that's gone to four and a half times. And in big cities like Victoria, Vancouver, Toronto, and only the big cities, the income that you had to qualify up to 120 has now been extended to 150. So that would bring in a few more people. But the big changes, as you pointed out, under the government's view, it helps you to keep more of your money when the house increases in value because the limit the increase per annum to 8%. So if it goes up 8% per annum, not compounded, then you only pay back that amount if it goes up. But, and here's the one that you had alluded to, 
the government of Canada will also limit its share in the depreciation of the home of time of repayment. This is up to a maximum loss of 8% per annum also. Well, I kind of like that, you know, they're going to change the deal after you've made it. That's the thing that jumps out at me also. And, is it, and yeah, it did strike me right away. And you're right, I'm probably cynical, but saying, hey, wait a second, are they worried about decline in the housing market, which they should be, given what the policies are right now. And we've also seen, it's not a coincidence, we've had a couple of months of weaker sales, especially out of that Toronto area, that they're saying, wait a second, maybe we don't want to be that much of the downside. So they, you know, kind of changed the rules there. And again, look at the backdrop, though, Ozzy, when you look around to those big markets about the falling sales. Well, look at just very, very briefly, Looking at Vancouver in May, and this is early numbers, I mean, it's really close this Saturday, but when the May numbers are reported, it will show that the sales of a single-family home in the city of Vancouver are down 44%. And while you swallow hard and you say, wow, you go to the Fraser Valley, sales are down for a single-family home 63% over last May. So no question about it. If you look at prices, it's kind of interesting. You and I talked about that there seemed to be a price change underway for single-family home. The high in Surrey or in Fraser Valley was a million nine in February, million eight in March, a million seven in April, and in May it's a million six. So we have seen come down. Vancouver hasn't seen that kind of a drop, but clearly when you and I talked about it in early February that the high was in place, the high was in place. Well, and again, one of the pieces of advice, uh, obviously, you've given all along is get pre-approved for your mortgage, especially when there's hints that we may be seeing, you know, rising interest rates. Of course, now that's the reality. I mean, even the half point increase we saw on Wednesday, look at the difference that's made to a variable rate mortgage, you know, in just, you know, since the beginning of the year, it's, it's an extra one and a half percent or one and a quarter percent, rather, since the beginning of the year you know, prime rates jumped up that much. So, yeah, I can see people really feeling the pressure of increased mortgage costs, including those people, right, who had a fixed rate mortgage, they did it in 217, a five-year. Well, they're going to be renewing at higher rates, significantly higher. Well, the thing is, I wrote about it at length in my Ozbuzz blog, that, that it's, to me, it's not so much the actual interest rate and the increase. It is the speed of the increase. If you go from in the United States from 2.7% to 5.7% in three months, the effect is that there's 70% fewer refinancings going on. The market is in a free fall in Miami and right across the board. And when you look at our rates, I mean, we're now at a stress test at 6.2%, which is enormous. I could have gotten you a 2.7% five-year term just three months ago and try and get something now under 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 four and a half percent for the average person. So we are trying to really knock out the, the buyer and at the same time we are very concerned about inflation. I mean the government is and so they should be. But but uh, your point's well taken. I mean it's a shock treatment. You know this wasn't a steady increase you know and the probability still in the states is for another couple of half points soon though. You know and the only the first time you see are seeing that questioned isn't July, looks like, looks like there's about 60% of the market analysts think there's going to be another half point in September in the States. But it's the same thing here. We've got another half point coming, you know, at the very least on the short term. Maybe they pause, maybe they don't. But yeah, I can see what you're saying. It's a shock treatment and people all of a sudden just back off and saying, I'm not in the buyer's side anymore. The adjustment to that change in mortgage and, and the adjustment to the change of what your monthly mortgage payments would be is, is enough to really bring people out of the market, as it were. Well, in, in my view, and I write about it extensively in my new Ozbus, which is out tonight, and 
just to blow my own horn, if, if a listener hasn't signed in, sign in at ozbuzz.ca. It's a free subscription, but if you don't sign in, I'll put it on the website, but that's 10 days from now. If you want to get it right away, please sign up now. But I make an extensive forecast, and I'm even analyzing the possibility of a three-quarter percent increase in, in July rather than just a half a percent. And I, I do believe that inflation is much, much higher than it is reported, and that uh, more will be done on the government side to uh, to help us. I really agree on that inflation front. I think it's significantly higher. And the reason is I'm not saying there's anything untoward happening there. But, you know, the inflation I've said, and I'm proud that I have said this for a number of years, hey, tell me about shelter, tell me about food, tell me about energy prices, because I can't avoid any of those. I can't avoid buying clothes this week or furniture, you know, that kind of stuff. So I'm right with you. And of course, then they didn't measure house inflation. You know, the actual house price is not included there. And again, those are important things for individuals. And that's what I encourage people to continue to focus on. But let me finish with just reminding people, yeah, your latest report is out today, out tonight. So go to usbuzz.ca, sign in. It's a free report, but I, I'm going to be doing that. My, I don't have to. I'm already signed in. But <laughs> I would if I wasn't, Ozzy. I'd be going right away because I want to see those forecasts. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Mike. And, you know, like I always try and come up with a real thoughtful kind of a thing at weekly events. And and uh, this is this is really has me stumped. My grandson said to me, he says, you know, Opa, he says, you say you lost 10 pounds. Where did it go? <laughs> oh, don't look at me like it came to me, by the way. Don't tell them it went my way. I want to go live to the trading desk and make the obvious observation that, man, things have been up and down and all around, depending on what you're looking at, what you're investing or trading in. I'm sure some people have got a tremendous headache. Other people are going, hey, this is going pretty well. Well, I want to talk to Victor Adair about something he said a few weeks ago. Vic, uh, let me start with this. As, uh, you finished off our, our segment, I think it may be two, three weeks ago, and you've said it before, though, but you said, I make money from trading not because I have a great crystal ball, but because I manage risks. So I want to talk about that today, because if we can do anything to help people along, I think encouraging a perspective on risk management is absolutely key. I mean, that's the lesson that professionals like yourself learn over time, and you learn what techniques learn, what attitude you have to have, et cetera. So let me just start with that. Uh, why don't you describe what risk management actually is? Well, Mike, uh, I had the, you know, I've been writing a blog, and I have people all over the world that read it, and I had a wonderful question from a guy in, in Poland, of all places. He said, Victor, what do you mean by risk management? And I thought, what, what, what a fabulous question. So I've taken to writing a section on my weekly blog about risk management. But for me, uh, risk management kind of starts with why am I trading? You know, uh, am I seeking excitement, uh, the, the thrill of winning? Uh, you know, and for me, it's just – it's. It's not about making a great call on the market. It's about, like, what do you do if you're not right? You know, uh, what do you do? How are you going to manage the risks? So I, I made a, a few points, and one of the key ones for me is I don't measure my performance against anybody else. I just kind of do what I do in the markets. It's never perfect. You know, I always could have done a better job but you just have to live with the results. I think in a way it's a lot like, you know, professional sports. 
everybody's got a plan until they get hit hard, you know, and, and then you have to go to plan B. Well, let me come back to something you're saying there, because it, it might, it's easy to say, but, uh, you know, after you've been involved as long as I have and as you have in the various investment markets, and I've observed myself, I mean, I'm my own best uh, sort of case study of mistakes being made, but I want to come back to this. You know, when you say, why am I trading? Uh, and you could say, why am I investing? But people immediately, well, of course, I'm there to make money. That's not my experience. I've met lots of people who could have made money and ended up losing money. For example, they bought something and maybe it had a great run and you're up 38%. And you ask, well, they didn't sell it though. They ended up losing money in that trade. And I've done that myself. I'm, happily, I'm talking about something 30 years ago, but man, it slapped me in the face. Like, why am I doing this? And so there is something to say, hey, you know, some people are seeking excitement. Some people are, are like the thrill of winning. But the other one, some people want to be proven right. That's a huge obstacle for people. And as I say, well, I, I like how you've put that, though. You remember why you're there. No, it's got nothing to do with being right, being wrong, thrill, anything. You're there to make money over time. Exactly. And uh, for me, making money over time is a great way to see it. Like, it's not a sprint. You know, it's a marathon. you you got to grind it out. And let me give you a couple of thoughts here. You know, first of all, I'm not afraid to lose money. I just don't want to lose very much on any one idea. And it goes over the years. I've had so many people will say, "Well, what do you think is going to happen?" You know, or at people at a conference, they want to hear somebody recommend what to buy. And I've heard an expression about a a high conviction trade or a high conviction trade idea. To me, that term is like a marketing slogan. It's not a trading plan. I never go all in to use the current term on a trade. Every trade I put on is just a trade, and given my experience over the years, I actually lose money on more trades than I make money on. It's just that the losses are a lot smaller. So when I put a trade on, I think to myself, chances are this is going to be a loser. So at what point do I get out of it? Like I just don't fall in love with any idea. Again, let me reemphasize the last thing you said there. You get into a trade. You understand at what point you are wrong. Again, unfortunately, I'm thinking back uh, 30 years, 35 years. Man, did I learn that lesson the hard way. You know, I, I didn't have that point. And it was emotional. I didn't want to lose. I didn't like the idea of it. So I held on way too long and then inevitably lost more money than I ever needed to. And I think we're, I bet we're going to have a lot of people experience that right now in those sort of high growth, low revenue tech space where you've got you know, well-known companies, the one that I always come to mind for me is Peloton, but down 90%. You should never have been in that trade for a 90% loss. And I think, so I don't want to just gloss over and say, you get an idea before you leave of, okay, what am I prepared to risk? At what point am I there to be wrong? And then you act accordingly, as you uh, said a moment ago, you realize is that losses are part of the trading activity but you don't want them to be devastating. And I think the other thing you just said will surprise people that you expect to lose on more trades than win. But your key point is you limit the losses and make a lot more money on the winners. Yeah, as I said, Mike, I'm not afraid to lose money. I just don't want to lose very much. When I put a trade on, let's just talk about we're going to buy a market. If I buy a market, 
I do not know where I'm going to sell it for a profit. But I'm telling you, if, it is, if it's not going the way I want, it's not going up, I know before I put the trade on where I'm going to get out if it goes against me. When I put a trade on in my market, I almost always immediately put what we would call a, a good until canceled sell stop on it. I buy something at a level. If it goes down and it hits, the market hits that level, I'm out. And I'm just fully prepared that that's like the cost of doing business. I just don't want to buy something and hope it goes my way or whatever guru I was listening to was right when he said, buy this and you'll be rich forever after. <laughs> yeah, but uh, again, there's a lot in what you're saying there that I think is really key that you say, hey, I'll let my profit run, but I definitely know where my exit point is. And I can't encourage people enough. I, I got asked this the other day, uh, getting interviewed myself, Vic, uh, what advice would I give to newer investors? And I said, well, the whole thing is about risk management, 100% of risk management. And that, and for me, that was what you've said here. It was, okay, what size position am I putting on? How much am I prepared to lose? And what is my exit point? Because think of these markets. With this level of volatility, you can't wait and let the market decide when you're getting out in that sort of momentary way, when you're in a huge downdraft. And you sort of, uh, you know, because emotions take over at that point. And wishful thinking takes over at that point. So I just want to really emphasize what you've just uh, said, said there. Now, you're a trader, so you probably are checking your account, well, momentarily, as opposed to investor that might maybe check in once a month. Yeah, I use uh, pretty sophisticated software to follow the markets, to do my order entry and all that sort of thing, to manage my trading. And I am constantly checking that I, you know, I'm positioned the way I think I am. I've just found out that you, you, you make boo-boos. You know, you got a fat finger, you buy 10 instead of 100 or the other way around. Uh, I just constantly check to make sure that my account is the way I think it is. In other words, that I haven't forgotten to enter a stop order. I haven't forgotten to, to do this or that. And then there's also the thing, Mike, I think it's so important to forgive yourself of, for the mistakes that you've made. You know, if you bought Peloton and you still own it, okay, there's nothing much you can do about that. But just learn from that experience as to how you're going to change your behavior going forward. Like the next time you buy a Peloton and it runs up, you know, you'll take some profits. And if it starts to go down, you'll, you'll get out of it. So we all learn by kind of trial and error what works for me, what doesn't work for me, how much drama am I willing to take, you know, and uh, how methodical I want to be. So you develop your own way, and then you have to have the discipline to do what you said you were going to do. And all of those are learned skills, uh, but they're very learnable. You know, I, I, maybe it's difficult to pick winners all the time. For sure it is. But I'm just saying, but this part you can bring to the table. You can say, I don't enter a position without knowing my exit position. I carefully evaluate how much I'm putting in that position, how much capital I'm putting at risk. Those are things we completely control. And as you say, it's my own market behavior. Uh, the one thing that also comes to mind is that, and I mention it all the time because I look at myself, the old Bernard Baruch line that he says, if you don't know yourself, the markets are a very expensive place to find out. So I found out early on I wasn't a trader. I didn't have, because it takes 
much more disciplined to, to control your emotions. And at, sometimes I, I, it just didn't work out for me. And I just recognized, hey, I'm not built for this. So I'm much more comfortable uh, with an investment, a longer timeline, uh, identifying major trends and then drilling down how to take advantage of those trends. But it's the same way I wanted to ask you. You have a methodology on the other side of the coin, at least determining how to get into the trade, like what trades you want to put on. Well, you used a couple of terms there. One was, you know, your time horizon, as, as we've said so often, um, and I think this is a key to risk management is to keep the trading uh, t- time horizon of your trading in sync with the analysis that you put into why you want to do something in the first place. And the other word you use that just is like jumps off the page, as it were, for me is control. You know, you control the things you can control and you'll just, you can't control the other things. You let them go. You have no control over where the market is going to go. The only thing you can control is what you do. So make your trading plan and stick to it. You know, how much am I going to risk? Okay, this, that, and the other thing. And if you find that you're unable to follow your own plan, then I guess you got to change your plan. Well, as I say, this is the key to being successful long-term, whether you're an investor or a trader. I hope people took notes here, but... Maybe they didn't have to because they can go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. As, as Vic says, he's just, you know, we've got so many questions about this. He's just added a little section every week about risk management. And, uh, well, I don't think we could get a professional on this, uh, on this podcast who wouldn't tell you that's the key to success. And, Vic, you've done a great job elaborating for us. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, Mike, it's a pleasure. Always fun to talk with you. Time now for the this week's Goofy Award. You know what? And it's a dangerous one. At least that was the adjective that immediately came to my mind when I read Terry Glavin's story in the National Post entitled The Year of the Graves, How the World's Media Got It Wrong on Residential School Graves. And it was published basically a year uh, to the day of the discovery of 215 unmarked graves on the ground of the Kamloops Indian Residential School. I say it was dangerous because of the emotions involved when it comes to the horrendous treatment of students at residential schools that was well documented, by the way, several years earlier in the final volume of the Truth and Reconciliation Report, released December 2015, which contained a 138-page section, plus supporting notes, entitled Canada's Residential Schools, Missing Children and Unmarked Burials. Well, contrary to the media narrative, There were not mass graves, but unmarked burials. Tragically, though, nearly half of the documented deaths attributed were to a tuberculosis, which festered due to limited government funding, which, as the report details in quotes, students in most schools were malnourished, quartered and crowded in unsanitary facilities, poorly clothed and overworked. I mean, that's a damning conclusion that doesn't require any embellishment. As Terry Glavin notes in the National Post story, the documentary record going back to the early years of the 20th century is rife with accounts of sexual predators and sadists employed by the schools. In more recent years, what something like 50 school officials have been convicted of sexually abusing and raping children in their care. Some of them were supervisors, administrators, priests, brothers from religious orders, and a Catholic bishop. Come on, this doesn't need any sensationalizing or embellishment. And please be clear, Terry's story is not about challenging the horrendous and tragic conditions endured by indigenous children taken from their families and the unfathomable hardship survivors continue to face. 
which, by the way, I don't make any pretense of being able to fully comprehend. No, Terry's story, though, was focused on the media coverage, which sensationalized and fueled the outrage. And by the way, think about this. The response didn't stop at just canceling Canada Day, but resulted in the burning or vandalizing of, what, 68 Christian churches? Canadian flags flew at half-mast on government buildings for five months. Statues were torn down. All of it prompted, though, nine Victoria-area First Nations leaders to sign a document stating these actions, in quotes, fuel hate and inhibit the healing that is so deeply needed right now. The disrespectful and damaging acts we have seen are not helping. They are perpetuating hurt, hate, and divide, end of quote. That's why I think it's important to examine the media coverage. What was gained by sensationalizing and magnifying the tragedy? I mean, it's not difficult uh, to see that the coverage and subsequent outrage is part of a bigger agenda, though. I mean, it's the kind of thing we saw in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. Certainly paid a part, by the way, this whole story. China was pushing the cultural genocide story about Canada. They did it on social media, it was in, and they did it publicly in order to mute criticism of their heinous crimes against the Uyghurs. But I think the bigger issue regards the media handling of the story surrounds Terry Glavin's statement that false reporting or purposely sensationalizing the stories doesn't promote reconciliation. Instead, it reduces the tragedy, especially when Canadians start doubting if what they're being told is true. The response in some quarters then is, hey, well, then don't expose the falsehoods or the hyperbole, which I'll bet Mr. Glavin heard some variation of in spades. It's part of that old debate, though. Do the ends justify the means? And increasingly, I think the answer is yes for a lot in the media. Now, it's certainly the case with COVID. You know, you weren't supposed to question the government uh, mantra or edicts. And if you did, that could result in things like job termination. You know, the end of getting everyone to comply with government edicts, including vaccination, justified what can fairly be called advocacy journalism. To some degree, though, that can also be said about the climate change debate, where scientists who dissented from the alarmist agenda were vilified. But again, the threat has always been overstated. As Terry Glavin concludes, and I think this is the important part, this is directly related to an increasing tendency across journalism, academia, and government policy to conflate knowledge with belief. It's a tendency that's fatal to the functioning of liberal democracy. And I'll add that it greatly contributes to declining confidence in government and the establishment institutions. And I think that's leading to social unrest. We saw it in the truckers' convoy, but the massive protests in Europe too. No, this is a serious issue. The ends do not justify the means. And especially in this case, with this story, where the facts are so overwhelming, where Canadians have responded to the real facts in a way that has created at least a higher level of sensitivity as the tragedy of the residential schools has been brought forward. That's all the time I have today. Hey, look, I hope you go out and have a terrific weekend. I hope you make it a habit of joining us, Michael Campbell's uh, 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 money talks on Facebook and also money talks tweets. In the meantime, as I say, have a great week. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet. 